Thanks, band. Good morning again, and welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, like others have said before this morning, we're really glad that you're here. And so if you're uh, brand new or maybe newer to our church, you maybe don't know, but we are a church plant, which essentially just means we're a church that was started. There uh, uh, actually was a church meeting in this building for decades, and then they ended. The building was left empty for a few years, and we, we started uh, about 12 and a half years ago. So unlike God, we have not always existed. We are a, a younger type church, uh, just 12 and a half years ago. And the way that we were started is that there's about 25 adults and a, and a handful of kids that all came from the same church uh, to start meeting here and, and become uh, a brand new church. And most of us, we, were, we just had a lot in common. We came from the same church. We uh, were mostly the same age, same life stage, uh, just lots in common. So Hiawatha began with a small amount of people that were, that were very similar to each other. But by God's grace, we have grown both numerically as well as uh, immaturity as, as well. And so we've grown by about 20 to 25 adults every year and about 5 to 10 kids every year. And then obviously, as we grew numerically, we also grew in our diversity. So as a church, we became more and more diverse as we grew in number. We became more diverse in things like our ages, our life stages, where we lived, our ethnicities, our socioeconomic backgrounds, our education, and our relationship statuses. Again, we're grateful for God adding more and more people to our church. We highly value that. We pray for that. We ask God that he would continue to do that. And by his grace, like I said, we have grown as a church. We've grown numerically through things like people having babies and adopting children, as well as people meeting Jesus for the very first time, converting, becoming Christians, as well as people brand new to the city who are looking for a spiritual home. So numerical growth and the accompanying growth of diversity are gifts from God. I'm going to be very clear on that. Good things. We pray for them. Gifts from God. But even though they're great and we thank God for them, and see them even as gracious gifts, they still come with challenges. So maybe many of you remember Hiawatha maybe eight years ago or even like five years ago, and things have changed. Even though we are the same church, same DNA, same philosophy of ministry, same theology, same values, we just look a bit different when our size and our diversity begins to change. Our kids' ministry looks a lot different uh, when it was 10 kids than when it is now with 100 kids. Right? And us as a church, when we were 25 or even 50 people, we, look, uh, we looked very different than we do now as a church of about 250 adults. So even though we stayed the same in who we are, things changed because of our growth and because of our change and in, in growth in diversity. If this interests you and you just want to know more of the history, we actually preached a whole sermon on this in our Big Questions series this summer, uh, May 27th. You could check that out if this kind of interesting to you and you just want to know more about our church. But numerical growth and diversity are both really great. We pray for more. Join us in praying for more that God would save more people in our city from their sins, that more people would uh, meet Jesus, and that he would gift us with the ability to resemble this beautiful and diverse city that we live in. And at the same time, all these great things come with challenges. And that's what we're seeing in the church in the book of Acts. So we right, we right now are in a sermon series in uh, the book of Acts right now. So uh, this takes place after Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and the church is now born. So Jesus is, 
in heaven, ruling uh, on his throne, and he sends the Holy Spirit into his church, and now the church is exploding. Literally, uh, it's growing by thousands and thousands and thousands of people early on. And so that's a challenge that we're seeing in the book of Acts. What we've experienced as a church over the past 12 years, they're experiencing over the period of a few months and multiplied by like a thousand, literally like a thousand. So the church is exploding in number and in diversity, and for them, they are uh, going through some challenges. And so, so far in the book of Acts, we've seen uh, persecution and evil from the outside. We've seen uh, the religious rulers and the authorities fight against the church. They have taken the, the, the 12 disciples, the apostles, and thrown them in prison and beaten them and said, don't you dare speak about this Jesus anymore. So we've seen uh, conflict from the outside hurting the church. We've also seen uh, evil from the inside attacking the church. There was false converts. There were kind of wolf-like people that were trying to hurt the church. Uh, we saw that also in the book of Acts. But today, we're going to see a challenge. We're going to see a problem that uh, the church has to deal with, but that's probably not coming because of sin. It's just a, a natural challenge that the church has as it's growing numerically and in uh, diversity. So there's not necessarily sin that's creating this big problem within the church, but rather just something that's naturally happening as the gospel goes forth, as people are converted, as the church gathers together and tries to disciple each other and tries to grow and mature uh, in their faith. And as we see this, we're going to see the apostles and then some, some other leaders that get appointed in this passage, and we're going to see these leaders look just like uh, Jesus Christ. So we're going to see that the solution to this problem is going to be more and more Christ-like figures that are using their influence, using their power, using their leadership in ways that look and resemble uh, just like Jesus. So we're going to be reading from Acts 6, uh, 1 through 7. If you want, you can uh, follow along on the screen. It's also um, in your worship folders. There's an insert. You can follow along there on your phone or device. I'm read the first seven verses here of Acts 6. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. Please pray with me real quick. God, we thank you for this great passage. We thank you for what it shows about you and your character and how uh, even amidst great challenges, uh, you are still there. God, we pray that your spirit would speak to us, enlighten us, open our hearts to see what you have for us this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we begin our passage by seeing that the church is increasing. Very first verse says that now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number. 
So they're having growing pains as a church. More and more people are becoming saved. The church continues to grow. And because of that, they're having these growing pains. There's more needs. There's more lines of communication. There's more opportunities for, for, for tangible needs or for conflict to arise. There's more locations. There's just more people to shepherd and care for and oversee. And there's just more sinners in general, right? So uh, all these people are new, new converts, right? They're just Christians for just a few months. And so as the church grows, they are having these growing pains. And like I said, not, not just is the church growing in number, but it's also growing in diversity. No longer is it just the 12 disciples or even the 120 that kind of followed Jesus that was more or less similar. They had lots of similarities and similar language, similar culture, uh, things like that. Now, if you remember uh, just a few weeks ago when we, we studied this, so uh, Jesus told his disciples to wait until he sent the Holy Spirit and then he did around Pentecost. So Pentecost was a celebration where uh, Jews from all over the world, so Jews from uh, Africa, Asia, and uh, Europe would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this uh, holiday of Pentecost. And when that happened, uh, Jesus sent his spirit into the disciples. They preached the gospel in all these different languages. And then uh, thousands, 3,000 uh, people be, uh, become Christians right that day. So now the church is not just a bunch of Jewish people speaking Aramaic. They're now incredibly diverse with all these new Christians all living in Jerusalem uh, at this time. So the church is now not just growing numerically, but also in diversity. Different cultures, different cities, different ethnic groups, and different languages. And in a, be in, and in a beautiful mosaic of humanity, they're all united under this same gospel. We're not seeing great tensions. We're not seeing infighting between different people groups or different languages or different uh, ethnicities or, or nationalities. But, like we said, with this growth and this diversity, there also comes challenges. And the big challenge we see in today's passage is that there's Hellenistic Jews, so Jews that aren't from Jerusalem, that are from these uh, neighboring places, uh, different, even, even from uh, different uh, continents, uh, so the Hellenistic Jews speak the Greek language, and they have widows who are being neglected by the daily distribution of food. So in our passage, we have two different groups of people, the Hellenistic Jews that speak Greek, and then the Hebrews, it says here in our passage, or the Jews that are from Jerusalem and the neighboring area who speak Aramaic, and they're having a conflict because the, the Greek-speaking Jews, their widows are not getting food. They're being neglected. So there's at least, if nothing else, there's a breakdown in uh, communication, probably via language barrier. Now, some people think that there's maybe some discrimination here based on language or ethnicity or even some type of favoritism. Um, but most people don't think that's actually the case. They, they think this is mostly just a, a logistical challenge of having two languages spoken by two two big groups of people. And the reason they think that is because both before this and after this, there's great love and generosity and unity within the church. We don't see ethnic or linguistic or, or uh, fighting between different nationalities or different citizens, um, but rather we see great love and great uh, unity and compassion. And like we saw in our passage, the, the whole church actually likes the apostle's solution. They don't fight and say, no, that's not fair to our side or that's not fair to our side. 
So probably what's going on is just the church is so big, at least 10,000, maybe even 20,000 people. Some uh, commentaries think the church is that big. There's just challenges because two different languages are spoken and they're, um, the church is just so big, they're, they're having this challenge. Again, this is almost for sure, at least my opinion, I don't think that this is a sin problem. It's just a logistical problem of what happens when God grows his church into a mega church overnight. And so for us here at Hiawatha Church, uh, especially if you've been around for a long time, this can be just really comforting for us to know that the same type of challenges we have experienced or growing pains or having to tweak things as, as we lead or as we uh, make Hiawatha um, run and um, the ministries continue to go on, we can just know that the same stuff we've experienced, the same challenges we've had, the same tough stuff we've had to go through, the same uh, good things we've had to say uh, goodbye to because we've outgrown that, that's just normal. And so we see the church in Acts going through similar stuff. And so uh, as we look at our own past and as we look into the future, if God continues to grow us as a church, that just can make sense to us that we're going to go through these growing pains and that it's not necessarily a sin thing. It's not because we have selfish or, or sinful people making decisions. It's just the reality of a church growing. So an exciting time here in Acts and an exciting time for us as a church as God continues to, to move here. His spirit uh, regenerating hearts and, and saving people from their sins and um, we're excited about that. But back to our text. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on. So the background, you might be wondering what, what's going on here with this widows and food distribution because we haven't really seen this in Acts so far. It's not a common practice in, in most churches to have a daily distribution for the widows within their church. So kind of what's going on. So our passage again, it begins by saying, in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is growing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected by the daily distribution. So again, remember, there's two main groups, or there's yeah, two main groups in the church, ones that speak Greek, the Hellenists, and ones that speak Aramaic, so the, the Hebrews, as they call them here in uh, this passage. And the challenge is, uh, one group is being neglected. And so if you're wondering about this daily st- distribution, we began to see it just a few chapters ago in Acts 4. So as the church was growing, there was uh, needs. And so in chapter 4 we read, there was not a needy person among them. So there's thousands and thousands of people, maybe even 10,000 plus people, but there was still not a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. So what's been happening in the the early church is that the church is intentionally, sacrificially, right? People are selling their possessions, their land, their property, their homes, as they had extra, in order to meet the tangible needs of brothers and sisters within their church. They're sacrificially caring for the vulnerable within the church, the vulnerable among them. And so that's what's happening here. There are widows that are vulnerable, that do need help, that do need daily food and drink in order to survive. And uh, the disciples have been given money by the collective church in order to help people who are hurting. And because we just don't have something like this, this is not quite our culture, it's a bit different and living in America in the 21st century. Uh, Jen Wilkins, she kind of further helps us 
understand the importance of the church in caring for these tangible needs of vulnerable, vulnerable people, including widows here. She writes, In ancient uh, times, the widow and the orphan were the most likely to suffer exploitation or to be forgotten by their communities. They lacked social or economic power. They had no voice and no advocate. So if, if you uh, know anything about the ancient world, you know there just aren't things like universal health care. There aren't safety nets. There isn't social security. And so literally, when you became elderly or disabled, uh, if you didn't have a family to take care of you, you were pretty much without hope. You either had a bag, or if you didn't uh, receive someone's generosity through begging, you would probably starve or die. And so people like widows, especially elderly widows who don't have uh, the means to even work and to make food and, and then don't have a family to take care of them, are incredibly vulnerable, which is why the church is caring for them. And even though the ancient world did not see or care for these types of people, they were just down on their luck and um, not seen, the reality is, is that these vulnerable people were seen by God. They were not forgotten by him. And what's really cool to think of, we just sang a whole song that talks about just how mighty and powerful our God is. Throughout the Bible, he names himself or, or uh, reveals himself to humanity and says things like, I am the, the Lord of hosts. I'm the commander of an angelic army. I'm the creator of the universe. I am God Almighty. So he says things like that. That is his character. And he also says things like this. He calls himself the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. So even though uh, an orphan or a widow is just a speck in, in the size of like the entire universe, God says, I care for them. I want to be known as someone who looks at the vulnerable and says, I protect them. I love them. I want to be their father to those who don't have a father. I want to be the protector to those who cannot protect themselves. And not only does God describe himself as this, not, not only does he have love and sympathy towards these vulnerable and exploited and forgotten people, but he does something about it. All over the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, Old Testament through his people, through the nation of Israel, New Testament through the church, he calls his people to care for them, to care for the exploited, the forgotten, and the vulnerable, the hopeless, including the widow. And then we see this practically playing out in the church here in Acts. God's care for the vulnerable now continues in his church, which the church is called the body of Christ. So literally, Christ's body, Jesus' body, is caring for those that he loves. So that's kind of the background behind uh, what's going on here with the daily distribution, the two different groups of people, the conflict uh, that is happening here. So just think, the Greek-speaking widows are not getting taken care of. They're getting neglected for some reason, and they're bringing this concern to the 12 apostles who are also the overseers, the first pastors of the early church. So let's continue. What was the solution? What, what, what was the apostles' solution to this problem? Verse 2 says, And the twelve, or another, another name for the apostles here in the passage, And the twelve summoned the full, mem- the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. So to understand what's going here, we have to first remember who these twelve are. Right? So the twelve are also the apostles who were Jesus' twelve 
original disciples, his followers, his friends that he then called into ministry and are now the first pastors and overseers of this new church that's just exploding uh, inside. They're the ones that Jesus has commissioned to lead, care for, and protect his church. And they begin their solution of, of this problem, the problem that the Hellenistic uh, widows are being neglected. They begin their solution by reminding the church of what they have been especially called to do and commissioned by Jesus, which is the ministry of the word, the, the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. But it's not that they don't care about these tangible needs of their sisters in Christ, these widows who are being neglected. It's not that they don't care about their needs or that they're cold or uncompassionate. They're actually being really good leaders. And they're being good leaders by doing two things. The first is they're realizing their limits, right? Essentially, they are saying, we literally can't oversee both anymore, both the, the distribution of the food and drink to the widows and to overseeing and leading the church through preaching and teaching the word, discipling thousands of brand new believers. We literally can't do both anymore. We did it before because it was an important thing to do for the church, and it demonstrated this gospel that we're preaching and teaching over and over again. But as the church has grown to well over 10,000 people, we're unable to keep up. So if we continue to do what has been done in the past, we're actually not being good leaders because if we continue to do the, the status quo, our uh, Hellenistic widows are being neglected. So the first thing they do is they realize their limits. And then secondly, they know their limits. And so because of that, they remember their unique and specific calling as apostles, as pastors. So since the church has grown, and now they can't do both, they must focus on their main role or their main calling. Because they can't do both, it is not right that they should give up preaching the word of God in order to keep up serving this ever-growing amount of tables. So the apostles, the pastors, they realize that they have a, a, a unique calling given to them by God. And they start with their solution to this problem by reminding the church of this. As apostles or as pastors, we're especially called to focus on the word of God. What's also just crazy about this, and uh, one of our elders, Jesse Splann, picked this up. I didn't even see this. Was that, remember what just happened right before this passage. So right before this passage, the, these same guys, these same apostles, they are arrested by the rulers. They are thrown in prison, chained up, and then beaten, and then told by these same rulers, don't you dare speak about Jesus anymore, or we'll do the same thing. We'll throw you back in jail. We'll beat you even more. So this would have been the perfect excuse, even a good excuse, for the apostles to save their skin, right? This would have been a great time for them to say, yeah, we know we really should preach the gospel, but there's this huge need in our church, and we need to focus on serving our widows within our church. And then they would also kind of get out of being persecuted and, and thrown in prison and beaten some more. But that's not what they do. That's not what they do. They know what Jesus has especially called them to, preaching the good news that King Jesus has rescued humanity through his death and resurrection. And they tell the church, we know what, what this is going to mean for us. We know it's going to mean more prison time, more shackles, more chains, more beatings, and 
11 of the 12 are even going to die for the faith, but they know what Jesus has told them to do. It's clear to, to uh, them, and we've even seen it throughout Acts as the readers. We've seen already six different times where it, either Jesus has said it or it's been reminded to us as readers that the apostles were called by Jesus to be preachers and teachers of the gospel. Six different times it's come up in six chapters so far. And then part of their solution, uh, what it does is it offer, or a part of the solution they offer to the whole church allows them to even do what they're supposed to be doing even better. Again, verse 4 says, uh, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they said, for, for the past few months, we have been caring for this church, overseeing and leading this church, and, and part of it is we've needed to take care of our own. And we have been uh, helping out the, the widows who have this real tangible need. And we wanted to do this, but it's, it's taken time. And now as the church has continued to grow, now the Holy Spirit's given them this wisdom. They have a new solution that will allow them to, to not just, when they have time, preach and teach the word and disciple all these brand new believers, but now they can devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They can especially lead and oversee and pastor this growing church through uh, prayer and through the ministry of the word. Now, we have to hold both of these two things at the same time, right? So everything I just said is completely true, right? And it's, it's important. And even with all that, deeds are still incredibly important, vital, and necessary. So for the apostles, preaching and teaching the word and prayer is the most important thing that they're called by Jesus to do. And at the same time, these tangible needs are necessary. They're vital within the church. And what's really cool is that we see that the apostles don't just say, hey, here's a solution. You just find someone with a pulse to kind of uh, help out these widows a little bit. Or they don't just say, uh, they, they don't just try to sweep it under the rug and then uh, kind of be play politician and, and create this, uh, this solution to the problem that actually just looks kind of good but won't really help the widows. Brother, what they do is they say, we love these widows so much. We love our sisters in Christ so much. This is such an important thing that these are the type of people that we should appoint to take over this ministry. And if you remember how they're described, they're described as uh, qualified, respectable, spirit-filled, Jesus-loving, wise men that are going to lead whoop, this ministry. They say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So men who are respectable, men you know aren't swindlers, aren't uh, drunkards, aren't lazy, people that can care for our widows really well, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And notice just the way that they work together, right? Two different types of leaders Jesus has appointed and put in his church that help free each other up to do both what they're good at and what they're called to do, what the Spirit is empowering them to do. So both sets of leaders are doing uh, great ministry and ministry that they are called to do, complementing, complementing and serving and freeing each other up. Also notice too, and maybe you did notice this in, in the solution, but uh, all the names of, these, of, of the seven, they're all Greek names. And so notice just, the, uh, the churches care for these widows. They say, okay, we have a problem with this 
uh, group of our people being neglected and not taken care of. And so the people we're going to appoint to now care for them are going to be people from that group. So we're going to have Greek people, Greek leaders helping out the, the, the Greek-speaking widows that need help so that we don't have a repeat of this, so that they actually are taken care of. And as we're just describing the, the reality of what's happening, or, all, or as we're describing these kind of like qualifications or like this, what's on the resume of the, of the seven and of the apostles, you're probably noticing that what they're doing, as well as how they're described, it just sounds a lot like Jesus, right? It's something we say all the time here at Hiawatha as we preach. When we see a hero in the Bible, they probably look a lot like Jesus, or it reminds us of Jesus. And so here, again, we see leadership at all different levels, both their character and their qualifications, as well as what they're literally doing, reminds us of Jesus. They look and sound a lot like Christ himself. And in general, leadership in the Bible, that's the point of it. It's meant to resemble Jesus. It's meant to look like him. So as he is gone, reigning in heaven with God the Father, his leaders are supposed to tangibly be pictures of him and his leadership and his care and his love for us. When someone leads in the church, we're supposed to be able to look at them as well as their motives, their faith, and what they produce, their works in ministry. And we're supposed to see Jesus. We're supposed to see his gospel displayed and demonstrated. But in great contrast to the way that Jesus leads, much leadership in our world today is the opposite of that. Most of the leadership that, or much of the leadership that we see in the world today misuses power and influence and control and authority for selfish gain. They use their influence, they use their strength, they use their leadership in order to, uh, for, for their own comfort, for their own wealth, for their own power, for their own reputation. And we could list tons of examples of this. Some just ones that have come up this week, which it's, 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 it's everywhere. But uh, even just this week in the news, we've seen uh, abuses of leadership, leadership that's supposed to resemble Jesus but looks the opposite. In the Catholic Church and the NBA, all over politics, and even in some evangelical groups like New Tribes uh, Mission Organization and the Southern Baptist Church. But to be very clear, and even if this is happening, and if it happened or when it happens here at Hiawatha, any type of leadership that does not look like Christ is evil, it's horrible, it's Jesus dishonoring, and it's gospel defaming. Christian leadership must resemble Jesus' sacrificial, others-focused leadership. Remembering that even in our leadership, when you're leading your children, when you're leading uh, a community group, when you're leading on staff, when you're leading uh, a brother or sister in Christ who's not as mature as you, any type of leading, we need to remember that even in our leadership, we are, being, we are following Christ and his leadership. Porterbrook, in their uh, course on understanding leadership, they write, we, as leaders, we are to submit to Jesus' leadership, even in the way that we exercise leadership. He is the servant king, and we are called to live as servant leaders, not lording it over the flock, but always behaving as under-shepherds. So even as we lead, we're supposed to resemble Christ and look to our ultimate leader, look to our ultimate shepherd, Jesus. 
himself and just be constantly reminding ourselves that the people we are leading, the children that we are leading, the youth that we are leading are ultimately God's and he's just entrusted us with their care for a while. Also in today's passage, we see what kind of character that these leaders are supposed to have. In this description, when the apostles say, choose these types of people to lead in Jesus' church, how are they described? How are they described? What type of leaders does Jesus want to care for, protect, lead, and provide for his people, his church? Who does he, who does he call? Who does he want? Who does he appoint? People of good repute, people who are respectable. Not that they're the, the, the smartest or the wealthiest or the best business, uh, businessmen, but he wants people that are respectable, people that within the church they look to them and they say, yeah, that person loves Jesus. That person cares for the church. That person is not greedy. Also describe that they're full of the spirit and of wisdom. They're not led by the flesh. They're not trying to make themselves look good. And that they've been given the gift of, of wisdom through the spirit. Not only that, but they're called to be, not just have this type of character, but they're called to be servant leaders. So as they're leading, the way that they lead is through service, through serving others. The goal is not fame, it's not power, it's not importance, which often is the goal of leadership outside of the church and even sinfully inside the church sometimes. The goal is not fame, power, or importance, but that they use their leadership to serve others. And in our passage today, they're using their leadership to serve the least of these, the, the, the helpless widows that are being exploited and, and don't really have much hope that actually can't fight for themselves that don't really have a voice jesus in speaking about how others will use their leadership in his kingdom and then in his church will look very different from the surrounding world so he as he's speaking to his disciples in, in matthew 20 here he contrasts what leadership in the kingdom is going to look like, leadership in the church. And it's going to be very different than outside of the church where they use their power, their influence, their authority to lord it over others, to make themselves look good or to, to demand things from those that are leading. But Jesus contrasts it very strongly. And listen to what he says here. It shall never, or it shall not be so among you. Again, remember, speaking to these same 12 disciples. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's, this is how our leadership can resemble Jesus. This is how our parenting and how our teaching a class downstairs during kids' ministry and how being a staff member or a community group leader or deacon or elder or whatever type of leadership that you have, that's how our leadership can look like Jesus, how it can embody Jesus, is when we don't lead in order to have other people serve us, but we lead in order to serve others. He's our example. He says, this is how my kingdom is going to look. This is how my church is going to look. Because I came not to be served, but to serve, you also are going to do the same thing. But not only is Jesus our, our example, but he's also our power. The way that we actually can lead and not be selfish and not be arrogant and actually care about other people is through the gospel. 
is through Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many. The only way that that can happen is Jesus dying on the cross in order to ransom us back from the prison of sin and death, of selfishness, of arrogance, of pride. So now through the gospel, his disciples, his church, can now lead in a way that resembles him through Jesus giving his life as a ransom for us, dying in our place. And then third, the third way that we see Christian leadership looking like Jesus, designed to resemble Jesus, is that it is others-focused. So often, leaders in the Bible are called shepherds, right? Shepherds don't go to the sheep and say, sheep, look how nice my new robe looks, or look at, look at my staff, isn't it cool? Come serve me, bring me food, right? Shepherds, they care for the sheep. And leaders in the church are others-focused. Their goal, listen to this, their goal is the flourishing and the health and the spiritual growth of others. Christian leadership, that's our goal. Ephesians 4, so a little bit later on in the Bible, a letter written to churches is reminding them, this is why Jesus designed his church so that there's leaders within the church. Let's get real clear in Ephesians 4. It says, and Jesus gave the church all these kinds of leaders. And Jesus gave the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? Verse 12, to equip the saints, so saints just means Christians, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and mature personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the reason Jesus gives his church leaders is so that the leaders can build up the church. So the leaders can be used by God to bring unity within a church, to help them grow and mature and become more and more like Christ. The goal of a gospel-centered, Jesus-like shepherd and leader is for the flourishing and health and spiritual growth of those that they are leading. Matt Chandler, who's the pastor or uh, the president of Acts 29, which is a church planning network that we are a part of at our latest global gathering. So when 800 uh, Acts 29 churches get together once every two years, uh, this is what he had to say. He looked at church leaders, pastors, church planners within our network, and he reminded us this. He looked us in the eyes and reminded us, our power as leaders, as pastors, church planners, all, all type of leaders, our power has been given to us to die to self, and to serve others. Our power has been given to us to die to self and to serve others, and in that, image Christ. New Testament leadership, and relatedly, leadership in the church must look like Jesus, a Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve us, whose main goal was the spiritual growth and the health and the salvation of those he was caring for and who literally died so that those he was leading could have life. Also in our passage, we could even look at the specific examples of actually what did the seven do? Actually, what did the twelve do? And we can see that in their works, they're even imaging Christ. What they're called to do looks a lot like Jesus and his ministry and what pointed ahead to his uh, death and his resurrection and his ascension. So real quick, if we look at the seven, what did the seven do here in our passage today? They daily served food and drink to people who needed it, right? Which 
reminds us of all different kinds of things that Jesus did, including Jesus saying that he himself is the bread of life, saying that if, if we would eat of him, if we would tr- essentially trust in him, we would no longer be hungry or thirsty ever, uh, ever again. Also in the passage we saw the, the, the seven, what were they doing? They were literally serving tables, which reminds us of, of Jesus who, who literally served the apostles a meal around a table saying, this meal, the Lord's Supper, which is now called, is going to point ahead to the ultimate way that I was going to serve you, ultimately serving us on the cross. And then in the 12, the apostles, everything that they're doing as well is, is, is stuff that reminds us of Jesus, his ministry, and his leadership. So in the apostles in our passage today, we saw uh, them appointing leaders, which reminds us, us of Jesus initially being the one that appointed the 12 disciples who became the first pastors of his church. We see the apostles laying hands on these leaders, which essentially is them commissioning these leaders, which again reminds us of Jesus, who commissioned all the church to go and and spread the gospel throughout the world. And we see the apostles praying over the church, which Jesus did this all the time as well. Maybe one main place we see that, John 17, where Jesus prays for his church. And not just uh, his disciples right then and there, but for the future church. He prays for Hiawatha the church. We see the apostles devoted to prayer, which reminds us of Jesus as well throughout his ministry. Uh, constantly relying on the Father, praying to him often. And now as our uh, risen king, he intercedes for us constantly. And then finally, we saw the apostles caring for the physical and tangible needs of the people, but also realizing especially they needed to care for our souls by preaching the word, by teaching us the gospel. Just like Jesus, who focused definitely on healing people and on doing miracles and signs and wonders and feeding people, but ultimately focused on the words of the gospel that that led to spiritual and eternal life. 1 Timothy 1.15 reminds us of the way that Jesus ultimately did all of this. Though uh, the tangible works, the deeds, like I said, incredibly important, even vital and necessary within a church, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus' mission, though he did wait on tables, His mission was to save sinners. His mission was to die on a cross so that we could have eternal life and reconciliation with our God, forgiveness of sin through trust in him. What's great about how our passage ends today, it ends with the same chorus that we've actually been hearing throughout Acts over and over and over again. So throughout Acts, we've seen a bunch of stories of the the apostles preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, and at the same time, the church and, and the apostles doing miraculous signs and wonders, doing great acts of generosity and kindness, and those pointing back and, and validating and demonstrating and giving examples of all these words that are being preached. And again and again, we're seeing this chorus of, when that happens, the church grows. When that happens, people turn from their sins and, and believe in Jesus. More and more disciples are added to the church The church grows, and that's how our passage ends today. The chorus of more and more people becoming Christians gets sung once again. 
the result of what's going on in our, in our passage today, the result of the apostles' solution to these Hellenistic widows not getting food. The solution is mission. The good deeds, generosity, sacrificial leadership, and physical care that are all demonstrated in our passage today and in the church there in Jerusalem are now embodying and demonstrating this gospel that is being preached, this gospel that is being preached to, to their neighbors, to their coworkers, to their friends, and to their family members. And our passage ends with, with this verse. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But what's kind of interesting here, too, is Luke ch- uh, chooses to say this in verse 7. Like, it would have been true, and it is true. He could have said, and the number of widows that were being served increased and increased. The number of widows that were being cared for was multiplied. And that, the, that is inferred, that is happening. But what, what Luke chooses to say is that the word of God continued to increase. Even though these great acts of love and service and generosity are vital and necessary in the life of the church, it is the word of God the clear presentation of the good news of Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, and his just rule as king. That is the gospel that allows the number of people to increase, increase, and more and more people to trust in Jesus Christ and to repent of their sins. Our passage ends kind of with this cool, like, throwback to Genesis. So if you remember... If you've ever read the very beginning of Genesis, when God creates the universe and everything in it, he creates humanity, and he he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Increase in number and fill the earth. And our passage ends with this cool reference, this throwback to the very beginning of the Bible. And so what we see is we we see this, uh, this new creation account. Now through the gospel and now through the church, a new creation is happening. No longer is the church called to have more and more biological children, but now the number of disciples is increasing. The church is multiplying. And as we continue to go through the rest of Acts, we're going to see that Jesus' gospel and his church is going to fill the entire earth. As Jesus promised in the very beginning of Acts, Acts 1.8, he says to his church, You will be my witnesses. You will spread the gospel, not just here in Jerusalem, which that will happen, but also into Judea, into Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see this new creation now happening through the gospel as the gospel spreads out from Jerusalem into the entire world, we're going to see as we continue to study the book of Acts. So how can we as Christians and us as a church apply these gospel truths of Jesus being our king, of being the ultimate leader and his leadership in our own lives and in our church, as well as just personally, how do we apply this to our lives? First thing, let's thank God for the growth that he has given us. And it, 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 there are growing pains. We, we can just acknowledge that, that there are growing pains as we grow, as we have more and more children in our church, as, as more and more people become Christians, as we have more and more people attending our community groups or our Sunday mornings or our ministries or as our staff continues to grow, there are some growing pains. But thank God for that. There's something even more important than our comfort, something even more important than the good old days, right? And that's more life. 
more biological life, more spiritual life, more conversions. So join with us in praying that God would continue to grow our church through conversions, that more and more people would meet Jesus. And then, especially if you're a part of Hiawatha Church, if you consider our church, your home church, adapt with us. Don't be a complainer. Fight against that. We can get a knowledge that at times growth uh, can be really tough. Growth in diversity, growth in numbers can be tough. But help us. Be a part of the solution. Help us uh, make this church the healthiest place it can be in whatever way that God takes us with growth. But thank God, who is the one that is actually growing our church? It's not our great ideas. It's not our great wisdom or our hard work, but ultimately, it is him. Secondly, we need to constantly remind ourselves, because it's not how it is in the real world, but we must remind ourselves that it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that chooses and empowers leaders, all Christians. But as we're talking about leadership today especially, the Holy Spirit is the one that chooses and empowers leaders by grace. Not because of the best looking, not because of the strongest, not because they have the best resume or the best business people or the best whatever out there in the world. But the Spirit chooses and empowers leaders by grace, just like with our salvation. By grace alone, not by works. So in the church, the most wealthy, powerful, experienced, smartest, and best-looking aren't necessarily the ones who are going to lead. The Spirit both calls leaders and then empowers often people who are weak, people who are afraid, people who, in the world's eyes, are not strong and would not be great leaders, but then uses them through their weakness so that we can boast not in this, this really impressive person, but this really impressive God that works through weak people. So if this is true, and it is, that the Spirit chooses and empowers leaders by grace, and all Christians, then we don't have to compete or compare. Because it's not about me, and it's not about you, and it's not about those other leaders. It's about the Spirit. We don't have to compete. We don't have to compare. We don't have to be jealous. And if we are leaders, we don't have to self-preserve as if our only identity comes from us succeeding as leaders and looking better than others. So instead of competing and comparing and being jealous and having this, this attitude of self-preservation, instead, if it's a spirit that calls and empowers leaders, we can thank God for his tangible and spiritual care for us through our leaders. We can worship God when we see God using leaders within our church and in our classrooms and in our youth group, in our community groups, and in our families, and friends groups, and kids' ministry classrooms. And as leaders, we also don't have to be ashamed or fearful. Talk, we use this phrase often, in the gospel we can, have a com, uh, we can have a humble confidence. We can be humble because we know we didn't earn this leadership, we didn't earn this position, we didn't earn this influence or authority, it was given to us, so we have to be humble. We're, we're fools if we think that we shouldn't be humble about it. But we also can have a confidence because we know it's a spirit working through us. So anything good that comes out of us, we know that it is our God. And then finally, see Jesus in your leaders. Not because your leaders are Jesus, but because he's the one that is empowering them. And any type of Christian leadership that's good, that's healthy, should look like Jesus so tangibly make that connection in your life. When your leader, when your pastor, when your deacon, when a staff member, uh, when a parent looks like Jesus or, or, or does something great, make that tangible connection. 
that it is Jesus working through them. That is Jesus caring for you, protecting you, providing for you through that particular leader. And then again, make one more connection that in the gospel, Jesus has done that for you on the highest level. So when someone is generous with you, make the connection that what you're feeling and experience, that great thing, Jesus has done that for you spiritually on an eternal level through the gospel. When someone shows you forgiveness or kindness or love or protection, make that connection that it's not just your leader's a pretty nice person or they're pretty great or I'm very thankful that they are caring for me or serving me in this way. But, but make that, that connection, meditate on that Jesus is ultimately in uh, that leader and what that leader is doing is, is pointing to something so much more greater and eternal and spiritual uh, in the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us so much that you do not leave us to ourselves. God, that you, you care for us deeply, that you, uh, you know that we are sheep that need a shepherd, God, and you give us, um, your, you give us your son, the great shepherd, and uh, you also give us under shepherds. You, you give us leaders that image and resemble uh, Jesus. You give us leaders that care for us um, like Jesus uh, cares for us. And so, God, make us a healthy church. God, we pray for those who uh, don't know you yet, that aren't Christians yet, God, that they would see your, your great love for them and that they would want to be uh, a part of your family, that they would want to be cared for and protected. They'd want to move from being hopeless and, and, and uh, looked over and neglected into being someone who's loved and, and, and cared for and desired and wanted and who has life and meeting now through the gospel. So Holy Spirit, we pray for more and more and more of that in our hearts, in our church, in our city, in our families, in our community groups, in our ministries, um, and, and, and we need that. We, we pray for more of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.